Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. And here's your host, Jeff Cummings. Welcome, everybody. Again, I'm so happy that you're here today joining me on this journey through John Williams' film career. And the journey through his career as a film composer has arrived finally at the film that has just about every John Williams fan scratching their heads about the maestro's involvement. That film is Images, Robert Altman's take on a woman's spiraling descent into madness brought on by her schizophrenia. And joining me today to talk about this standout score is Yen Dietrich. Welcome, Jens. Hello, Jeff. Thank you very much for having me. I've been a listener since the beginning, so it's a pleasure and a privilege now to be a contributor as well. Tell the listeners about yourself and how you became a fan of John Williams and his music. I saw Star Wars, Indiana Jones, the trilogy is at a very young age, so it feels like Williams' music has been with me for pretty much as long as I can recall, but... Um, my first album purchase wasn't until I was 12 years old, and I fell in love with Jurassic Park, like I think many of us did. And um, that's, I bought that the same day as Jerry Goldsmith's Rudy, and those two albums really just kicked off a lifetime of collecting for me. And uh, many of my best friends still today, including Yavar, who uh, gently pushed me into reaching out to you to do this show today, um, I, you know, I know him and a whole bunch of, uh, of other people that I'm still friends with from... Um, uh, gathering to see John Williams in Ohio back in 2001, like all of us from the forum. Um, and I'm seeing him again, Williams again, this August with the Boston Pops and David Newman. I'm so jealous. That's going to be a great concert. And I also want to mention that I also started my uh, journey with John Williams and collecting his music with Jurassic Park as well. So we have that in common. Oh, yeah. And Jens is a former host of the Goldsmith Odyssey podcast. He provided some very good insights into Jerry Goldsmith's career as a film composer, and I'm excited to hear what he has to say about images. If you've been following every episode of this podcast, you know that the association between Williams and Altman goes back to the mid-1960s when Altman was directing episodes of the anthology series Craft Suspense Theater, and Williams was putting his musical touches into just about any TV project he could get his hands on at the time. Of the nearly 40 episodes that Williams wrote music for Craft Suspense Theater, Williams put in music for the two episodes that Altman wrote and directed. When that work was done, Altman told Williams about an original screenplay he was working on about a woman whose mental illness turns murderous. According to the liner notes for the CD release of images, Altman told Williams, quote, You score it, and then I'll shoot it, end quote. That's not how film scores are usually written, though Williams would employ that tactic on a couple of projects later on in his career. In any case, Altman and Williams had to wait about 10 years for this film to get into production, and it's Altman's good fortune that he waited. By this time, Williams was an established name in the Hollywood circles, and his career was becoming more and more stable. The peculiar nature of the story, as, Altman's penchant, as well as Altman's penchant for being an unconventional storyteller, actually made Williams happy. He has been quoted as describing Altman as a very ebullient guy hmm. who, would do just, who would just say, do whatever you want. The more absurd it is, the better. For Williams, who often said the film medium sometimes limited what he could do with music, this was an opportunity to push the envelope. 
And there are many musical moments in this that don't sound like anything John Williams had written before and even will have will write in the future. Some of the musical moments start out with a beautiful John Williams melody, but by the end it's fractured and atonal, just like the main character of the film. And that's what makes this score so fascinating to me. It's another example of John Williams branching out and showing his chameleon-like ability to write any kind of music that fit the picture. I can't imagine his colleagues Henry Mancini or Bernard Herrmann tackling this project. Even Jerry Goldsmith, who was famous for his off-kilter score for Planet of the Apes four years earlier, might not have provided the same type of music that Williams was able to provide. Williams wanted to compose a score consisting of mostly weird sounds, even going so far as to make conventional orchestra instruments play in unusual fashions. But the big part of the score relies heavily on percussion elements, and not just the typical timpani drum or the cymbals. Mm, yeah, Jeff, I think you're right that um, even though the avant-garde approach to the material is fairly goldsmithian, I agree that I don't, I don't think any other composer, even Williams himself at an earlier or even a later point in his career, would have produced this particular score. I imagine if Goldsmith had done it, it would have been maybe somewhere in the realm of the Mephisto Waltz kind of sound, maybe a little bit more percussive. Not that, I mean, just because Williams chose percussion for this actually seems like kind of an inspired uh, thing to do. It, it's, it seems that inspiration struck him in just the right way to match Altman's concept with an equally schizophrenic approach to the music. Uh, his key inspiration being the Bachet brothers, uh, Francois and Bernard, who were pioneers of sound sculpture and had invented instruments like the voice leaf, which uh, utilizes metal sheets that, uh, when vibrated, make a sound almost but not quite like the human voice, or the Cristal Bachet, which is played by running wet fingers across glass rods. Uh, some of the Bachet's instruments were regularly used in concerts, but um, others were museum pieces. So Altman and Williams had to go to Paris personally to convince them to rent those instruments out. The Bachets agreed, but with one interesting twist. The only one allowed to so much as touch the instruments was Williams' chosen percussionist, Stomu Yamashita. And that's another in what will become a long line of collaborators between Williams and a special soloist. Remember, we had Isaac Stern and Fiddler on the Roof as well. So, Jens, you're a fan of Yamashita, so why don't you tell the listeners a little bit more about him? Well, until Prometheus put out images on album finally in 2007, um, I really primarily knew him for being an important figure in prog rock, the, the prog rock scene of the 70s and 80s, heading the supergroup Go with Steve Winwood. Uh, but images is what really first made me dig into his early career, uh, which I found fascinating. I mean, he was only 25 um, when he worked on Images, and at that point he'd already performed to great acclaim with uh, Saiji Ozawa and the Chicago Symphony. Um, he was musical director of the Red Buddha Theater Company, and he was already a major star in his home country of Japan with several albums to his name. Uh, in fact, he's kind of an early pioneer of world music before world music um, was even called by that name before it was a formal genre. And the solo album that he did just before Images um, was also called Red Buddha, uh, and I believe it's what got him the job. Um, it's easy for me to imagine Williams listening to it and having that eureka moment that he found the perfect person to give him just the sound that he needed. Thank you. 
So with Yamashita signed on, Williams was ready to start working on the score. Uh, most of the stories floating around about the performance on images suggest that the percussion elements were all improvised by Yamashita, with Williams simply composing around them. And uh, hearing Red Buddha, it's easy to understand why people might think that. But in fact, Williams actually had every note planned out in great detail, including how strongly the instruments should play, how loudly, at what speed, uh, though he did allow Yamashita some freedom in which of the Bachet sound sculptures he wanted to use uh, based on the feel of the scene. The traditional orchestral parts, mostly strings, piano, and woodwinds, uh, were recorded by themselves first um, in three big sessions in London in February of 1972. And uh, then Williams and Yamashita got together for 13 uh, isolated sessions to capture all the weird sounds. Uh, Williams playing all the piano instruments, including the harpsichord and the celeste, uh, and percussion-wise, we get a combination of the Bachet instruments, uh, kabuki percussion such as tok-toks and claves, and either a kokoriko or a bin zazara, I'm not sure, but you do hear that kind of clacking. Um, you can tell it's little wood pieces that are connected on a string with each other kind of instrument. Uh, and traditional percussion like blocks, bells, and timpani, of course. And Stomu also plays an Inca flute at one point, or at, at multiple points and contributes vocals that uh, I might describe as somewhere between chants and grunts. Um, it's actually, uh, the album credits him with uh, percussion, uh, but I think uh, it's funny, the film credit that he personally asked for sounds Stomu Yamashita is actually more accurate and fairer in my mind to, to his contribution. So when you're listening to this and you hear those grunts and, and, and yells, it sounds like there's more than one voice here. I wonder if John Williams did a couple of the chants as well. That, that wouldn't surprise me uh, at all. Uh, the impression that I get from the Burlingame quotes in the liner notes and from the music itself is that these must have been like just really fun creative sessions for them to do together. I mean, they were both at similar points in their careers and obviously a great respect for each other. And even though Stomu was so young, um, we know from uh, their quotes that they were excited about the partnership and raising each other's profiles as artists. You know, they still wanted to broaden his repertoire as a performer, and Williams needed someone to give him those sounds. So, and I think the fact that Williams had so much creative license from Altman with this score, it it made it fun for him. Not to say he never had any fun on any of his previous projects, but I'm sure it was very liberating when a director just tells you to do whatever you want. Plus, he had just turned forty. And I could say from experience, that's a major turning point in many aspects of, of my <laughs> life. So I imagine it was a big turning point for him. All right. So before we start going through our favorite musical moments in the film, and it's hard to whittle them down, but we got some. I have to just say that Images as a film is not very good. We're introduced to say, Susanna York's character, who is an author named Catherine, as she's starting to write a children's book. Right from the beginning, things aren't right with her. She's hearing voices and imagining dead lovers. We have no context for these hallucinations, and we're expected to understand Catherine's predicament very quickly. There's no drill, real dramatic tension in the film until the final 20 minutes or so, which is actually a hallmark of Robert Altman's films and why I can never agree with him being called one of the best film directors in history. Part of the reason this film is so disjointed is because there was no real script when shooting started. Some of the scenes were created on the set with the help of the actors, another hallmark of Altman's filmmaking process. So, Jens, what do you think of the film in general? 
Well, we're on opposite ends here. We could probably do a whole hour of like a firing line or a point counterpoint on this. I personally, I find images one of the more successful depictions of schizophrenia on film. It does a really great job of putting us in the head of the protagonist, Catherine's head, by only letting us experience her life in that disorienting way that she does. And it's all done through old-fashioned filmmaking techniques, you know, still frame montages, zoom cuts, match cuts, just generally the the clever editing. Uh, And of course, the music being a huge player in the whole thing. So while I agree with you that it's a slow and disjointed movie, uh, as you say, I, I also think it's fascinatingly surreal at times. And it forces us as the audience to puzzle out what's actually going on. And um, I thought that worked really well. If you pay close attention, you'll soon figure out that Catherine is conflating the important men in her life in psychologically destructive ways. And you'll begin to dread what's going to happen. And then when it happens, you get to dread even more our heroine realizing what she has done. And that's thrilling emotionally, at least to me. Uh, Not least because I think Susanna York's really good in this. Yeah, I agree with some of those points. I agree that the film makes us understand Catherine's mindset, but the lack of a flowing plot line is too evident. That's what really sticks with me. Yeah, and that's very much a taste thing, too. Uh, To uh, to me, Altman, like uh, Mike Lee, for instance, uh, was a master of the improvisational approach to filmmaking. Uh, So I kind of tend to go in expecting that um, from him. But I can see how it's not everybody's uh, cup of tea. And I'm up and down on Altman in general. Uh, but um, this is kind of my favorite era of Altman. I think you're going to like The Long Goodbye a lot better since it's an adaptation of a great book and, and therefore, by necessity, much tighter. Well, I can't wait to watch that one. That's coming up in three episodes from now. Well, Jens, the one thing we can agree on about images is that the score is outstanding. <laughs> no doubt. So let's start with the music that opens the film. We see wind chimes hanging outside, and Williams performs on the piano to accompany some chimes also playing in the orchestra. As we see Catherine through the window, we hear her narration of the book she is writing, while Williams introduces the only thematic material of the film on the piano. Catherine thinks she hears a noise, and we cut to still images of a normal household items as the credits appear on the screen. The music takes a 180 degree turn, a taste of what is to come.
I love that groan that appears in the music there. And incidentally, it happens in the film just as Yamashita's name appears on screen. Yeah, that's a really good tortured groan, isn't it? It sounds like it's just like right there in your ear, you know, like close mic'd. Um, it's the thing I really like about this whole recording. Like there's another really nifty moment in this cube where we see the fireplace and Stomo is playing, uh, like I said, one of those wood instruments, the Binzazaro or something, um, to sound like the crackling of the fireplace. And it's played softly, but it's like right there. Uh, it feels so immediate. Um, it's like that and the voices and you've got the kind of the, the metal strings that sound that, you know, that sound like the human voice. You've got all those elements already represented in the score. Uh, right there from from word go and you've got Catherine's theme on piano a bit waltz like you know restless and uneasy but also tender and magical representing in a way the, the you know the fairy tale that that uh, um, she's writing and um, you know that point that that overall this is uh, uh, sounds like no other Williams score is absolutely true uh, but that particular element the Catherine's theme um, when you take it away when you isolate it from the Stomu stuff I think it fits well into the soundscape of something like a Jane Eyre or The Fury. Or even there's a bit in the woodwind writing in particular that reminds me of um, the Harry Potter theme, where it swirls kind of a bit and like rises. Um, so very Williamsy those parts. Uh, but what I get out of this cue in context, storytelling-wise, um, out of the tight interplay between the music and the narration and the editing, is that for now, Catherine's writing seems to serve as a kind of a refuge, and it's holding her illness at bay for now, um, is I think dramatically what, what the music is telling us. Yeah, that's a very good point. And we're set up for what's to come musically, so there are no surprises when it gets very strange later on. So the music stays away for pretty much the next 15 minutes in the movie, even though Catherine has imagined seeing her dead lover, Renee, and is hearing the voice of a strange woman on the phone. The first major instance of underscore happens when Catherine and her husband, Hugh, arrive at their country home. From atop a cliff, Catherine looks down and sees her car arriving at the house with someone who looks like her walking into the house. We're not sure what we're seeing, and the music keeps it unsettling with a bit of percussion and the Inca flute playing at a high pitch. Thank <laughs> you. 
And then the next substantial cue in the score um, is heard as Catherine takes a scroll through the grounds around her estate, accompanied by a very pretty rendition of Catherine's theme, orchestrated primarily for Celeste, guitar, and strings, that then suddenly just gets intensely stormy, strings just racing as Catherine comes across a scary dog that chases her, you know, off, around and off the grounds. You know, to me, this piece is notable for being on the album. It's not the only one, but in the film, it is the only cue without the only cue without an unusual sound element. It's the pure traditional Williams that you love and expect, and, and that makes perfect sense here dramatically. Uh, I think also because this is the one time that the threat is a real threat and not part of her hallucination. And it's kind of a key event in the film that undermines Catherine's sense of safety in her own um, home environment. Jens, I think you mentioned earlier that some of the woodwind work in the opening titles reminded you of Harry Potter. And I think I just heard some more music that will be used to, I'm sure, construct the Harry Potter theme in 29 years. The way the Celeste works through the main theme opened my ears to the fact that these are the same melodic intervals that Williams will use in the main theme for Harry Potter. I completely agree that there is a similar magical feel to the Celeste here and a melodic kinship between the themes that is at its most apparent in this cue. You could drop this cue in the middle of any of Williams's Harry Potter scores, and I don't think it would stand out to the casual listener. And then there are also a few more little moments of score in the movie, with Yamashita working his magic on metal strings and the like, as Catherine deals with Renee's appearance at weird moments. 
But it's not until we call what we call the love montage that Williams gets another big chance to have some fun. Yeah, in this key set piece, after her husband Hugh seemingly stumbles to bed drunk, Catherine's former lovers manifest to seduce her, and kind of one by one, and each is scored distinctly. So first you've got Renee with some sweet talk in French, and it's scored with this hurried little suspenseful motifs on piano, and what sounds like, I think, a xylophone over this like one-two, one-two percussion rhythm that's just like a ticking clock, not quite keeping time right unevenly, keeping time, but still sounding enough like a clock. Um, building the tension there. abruptly cut to Marcel, uh, the more aggressive of her former lovers, just pushing her onto the bed despite her protestations. And the score shifts to just this like ominous single low note on piano, just repeating at regular intervals. Um, and then uh, that uh, suspense motif kind of coming back to sag into the next sequence, when suddenly Catherine's with her husband, Hugh, uh, and now we start switching back and forth between the three, but the percussion switches to this like hollow wood sound for a bit to accompany Hugh um, with the, the the wind chimes from the beginning of the of the score coming in, uh, and then we suddenly cut back to her with Renee again, and the high pitched strings come in, long sustains of strings ramping up in intensity, uh, the most traditional suspense scoring element um, in the cue, uh, and then the wood percussion comes back, but this time not hollow but more bright. Again, forming little rhythmic patterns. And the whole, it's just a pure suspense piece. You'd think there'd be something, anything romantic in a cue called the love montage. Uh, but no, Williams just opts to emphasize Catherine's unease and disorientation and kind of gives each lover a slightly unique soundscape.
It is disorienting to me as well because I don't know how much of this is actual flashbacks or Catherine's imagination. I think that's kind of what makes it fun. And also the nature of her relationships with these three men is unsettling anyway. So we might as well have music to just go with it. Very unsettling. All right. So my favorite moment in the film, both visually and musically, is the scene when Catherine kills Marcel, or at least the hallucination of Marcel. As Marcel is taking off his shirt before making love to Catherine, she stabs him in the neck. And there's a quick stinger from the string section in the orchestra, then Stomu unleashes a guttural yell as he and the string section go wild for about 20 seconds. Things calm down a bit after Marcel falls to the ground. As Catherine heads upstairs to the bedroom, she looks back at Marcel's body. At this point, Williams comes in with the Celeste as we see the blood pouring onto the floor.
Just like nothing has happened, Catherine goes back to writing her book. Notice for the first time, Williams doesn't put in the main theme under her narration because things have just gotten too crazy for a lyrical piano melody. So, Jens, that Celeste is probably the most disturbing part of the scene for me. You know, usually the Celeste indicates innocence, but when played against the shot of oozing blood, it takes on this really creepy connotation. Yeah, it's also the the way it's played. It's got a real coldness here. It doesn't feel magical like it does earlier when she's taking her stroll. Um, it's a creepy moment, but as creepy a moment as it is, I can't help but feel intensely satisfied seeing Catherine stab Marcel, finally. And he kept forcing his unwanted advances on her throughout the entire film up until now. So I emphasize strongly with her need to just be rid of this guy. And Yamashita's death rattle here, it, it just, it's only adds to the satisfaction. It makes me chuckle. Uh, it's just so tortured and wonderful. Um, but now that Catherine has seemingly rid herself of these ghosts... Uh, including her doppelganger, who she's run off a cliff with her car. Uh, she's now ecstatically driving through town at night, laughing to herself and enjoying her new freedom. Uh, but of course, we know that the doppelganger couldn't really have been the doppelganger that she killed, so something terrible must have happened. And that's what Williams plays on, again by undercutting uh, what the character is feeling, undercutting uh, her relief with a thrilling one-minute action suspense piece for strings and percussion that just exudes this nervous energy and a futile forward momentum, especially if you're kind of thinking about um, where we're moving towards in the story. Um, it's a pretty brilliant way of uh, scoring this moment.
So later, as after she is driving, she goes back to her apartment in the city, and I believe she's looking for Hugh, and she doesn't find him. So she takes a shower, and when she's in the shower and sees her imagined self standing in the doorway, she suddenly realizes it was her husband that fell to his death at the waterfall. Williams and Yamashita take the music to another outrageous level as we see Hugh's body dead at the bottom of the waterfall. Yent, I like this moment. Actually, I love this moment because it shows how good Williams is as a composer. On the surface, it sounds like the orchestra and Stomu just threw out the music sheets and went crazy. But every note and every beat on the percussion was planned out measure by measure by John Williams. It's amazing how he could sit down at a piano and create this cacophony of sounds and make every second feel right. Yeah, I agree. I love it too. Um, It's a musical pummeling for sure, but it's not in any way discordant. You can pick it apart, you can find the structure, and you can kind of understand how each element contributes to that overall overwhelming sense of panic that this cue instills in us as, as as, we experience her realization. I think it would be cool to just look at the music sheets for that that moment and just see how it was written because I can't imagine being in the in the orchestra reading that and saying, "Oh boy, how do we do this? Like, this is all going to work together?" Right. All right. Yeah. So the film doesn't resolve the issue of Hugh's death. It ends with narration of the end of Catherine's book, and I guess all is okay because Catherine has excised almost all of her hallucinations. But that isn't really true, and William notes that with the rendition of the main theme that isn't as gorgeous as it was in the beginning of the film. Unicorn, goodbye, and thank you. Thank you for being mine. And the unicorn dipped its horn till it touched the snow and watched them gallop. Away, away, down the lane out of sight. Then it turned and ran swiftly into the forest. And then Ancient picked up the nice fat volume and put it on the table, and in big spidery writing he wrote, In Search of Unicorns, The End. See, I don't know what there is to resolve necessarily. Uh, it's to me a tragic and shocking ending. And I mean, not only has she not dealt with her demons since the doppelganger returns, but she, yeah, she's killed the man she loved, the only likable guy in the movie. Uh, I think we can infer at this point that she's going either to jail or an asylum. And even if she gets away with it, you know, she's basically ruined her life. Yeah, that's that's the kind of resolution I needed to see. 
I don't always need to see someone getting justice for their actions in a movie, but in this case, so many different things could have happened to Catherine that I needed some closure. But it goes with the nature of the story, I guess, that it just ends. And again, that's Altman for you. That's Altman, and as as you said, we could talk about this for an hour just on the plot alone. But um, we're here to talk about the music, and we could all there are a lot we, of interesting events. Yeah, we could agree that the music is still absolutely amazing. Um, and speaking of amazing music, we've talked about a lot of great music on this episode, but Jens and I agree that the most beautiful thing to come out of this score, most likely, was never meant to be heard in the film. If you have the 2007 release of this score, you know the track called Blood Moon. It takes the main theme away from the piano and puts it into the strings. It's a gorgeous composition and wonderful performance. Here is just a little bit of it. Yeah, I went back and forth on this myself. I'd wondered if it was a conceptual piece that might have fit a scene in the screenplay or at the outline um, at some point or something, uh, and it just didn't fit the finished movie anymore, or if it's just one of Williams's patented album-only arrangements of the primary theme, uh, which he loves to do. Uh, but yeah, just judging from like what a perfectly structured concert piece. It is the way it feels utterly whole and perfect. I, I'm thinking it's probably the latter. Like I, it's, it doesn't feel like something that needs to necessarily fit to picture. So um, it's kind of crazy, especially because that score was only put out as an Academy promo back in the '70s. So I, was it was he planning for an album? Is that why this cue exists? I don't know, but I'm I'm thankful that it exists. And uh, even though it remains relatively obscure in the Williams canon, I, I just wish that. That some string quartet or like somebody would play, should play it in concert. It'd be a great part of the repertoire if they ever did it. I would get tears in my eyes if I heard this played live. It would be so beautiful. I mean, every time I hear this music, I always say it's my favorite piece of music for the strings that John Williams has ever 
composed. But it's hard to say that this is better than Arlington from the movie JFK or A Prayer for Peace from Munich. They're all so good and so moving every time I hear them. Yeah, I've got exactly the same issue, picking favorites. And for me, too, it's usually the piece that I'm currently listening to. I, I love JFK in Munich as well, but um, and Blood Moon is way up there on the list um, if, if we're talking string pieces. The the one string-centric cue of Williams is actually that competes with it in my heart uh, from one of my favorite Williams scores is uh, Preparations from Black Sunday. Interesting. Well, now you've got me yet another movie to look forward to in the coming weeks. That's going to be exciting to hear. Yeah, it's a good movie too. I, I'm really looking forward to your episode on it. All right, so as we mentioned before, the score to Images was recorded in February 1972, seven months before the score to The Poseidon Adventure was recorded. Though Images wouldn't hit American theaters until December 17, it had its world premiere at the Cannes Film Festival in May 1972. Susanna York's performance earned her the festival's top acting prize, but that was about the only consistent praise the film got in the press. Surprisingly, very few of the top critics mentioned John Williams' score. Gene Siskel, for example, liked the, quote, nicely disturbing score, end quote, but that was about it. If I remember correctly, his, his partner, Roger Ebert, didn't mention Williams, but praised the movie. Um, so it's not like none of the critics at the time got what Altman was going for, but I guess he was the exception to the rule. Right, and they were starting to, to sense some, some great things coming from Altman, and I think a lot of them stayed on that bandwagon through the 70s. Yeah, it's about to get – yeah, we were about to get to, like, big Altman movies. If you were do, if you were doing the Altman Odyssey, you're about to hit some really huge ones. You know, Nashville's yeah. not that far away. Yeah, and I it would take a two-hour conversation because I'd have to talk about why I just cannot stand Nashville <laughs> for the same reason I don't like images. It just kind of meanders. And then, then the end is really good. It's really the ending is great. That's a great I, I agree. The ending is the best part. <laughs> All right. Some the funniest hell. Henry Henry Gibson's got some funny songs in that movie. Oh yes, he is good. I do remember him. He is great. <laughs> anyway, All sorry, right. I'll stop talking about Altman. That's all right. So uh images got very little play in the United States, but it did show in Los Angeles theaters, which made it eligible for the Academy Awards. John Williams was the only person singled out for an Oscar for the film, earning a nomination for original score alongside the scores to the recently released Charlie Chaplin film Limelight, the biopic Napoleon and Samantha, and the drama Sleuth. Also nominated in that category was the score to The Poseidon Adventure, written by John Williams. It was the first time he would be nominated twice in the same year in the original original score category, a feat he would achieve seven more times. Pretty impressive. Unlike the movie, I guess, because for the longest time, um, this film's legacy was simply being the John Williams project most difficult to Google. Uh, it's always so frustrating. You type in John Williams images, and you just get images of John Williams. You might as well type in. <laughs> you might as well type in Jerry Goldsmith link. You know, it's. Um, it, it for Altman movie it doesn't have much of a cultural footprint. Uh, that that footprint probably grew a little bit last year when Arrow put out their restoration of it on Blu-ray, which is a beautiful uh, set that I highly recommend. Uh, and there's been some revaluation of it in the you know in film, film Twitter and the film blogosphere, but uh, still considered a pretty minor work for Altman. But it still remains that one score that comes around in conversations about the pre-Jaws John Williams music. And I hope 
Our discussion today of the music in this episode only continues that conversation. All right, so that's going to do it for this episode of The Baton. I want to thank my guest host, Jens Dietrich, for being a part of the discussion today. Likewise, thank you for having me. And to all the listeners out there, if you want to be a part of the discussion, please feel free to send me an email to jeffswim at aol.com. I might read your comments on a future show. And on the next episode, we'll close out 1972 as John Williams writes music for another Walter Matthau film called Pete and Tilly. Thanks to everyone for listening today, and until next time, the baton is down. Mm -hmm.